<laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey Episode 2, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. My name is Steve Martin, and I'm one of your hosts today, and... I'm Ron Zazadinsky, your other host. And we also have a guest today, all the way from lands far, far away, um, John Walters. Can you introduce yourself a bit? Hi, I'm John Walters, and I'm a usability engineer, and I'm a technical communicator. So I try to make user interfaces easier and more pleasurable to use. Nice. <laughs> That's the kind of guy I like. I think to I be heard around. that somewhere before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you get a description like that, it's kind of hard to get away from it. So it's still true, you know. You know, it's it's. I think it's called standardization, so that people sort of memorize this and know what we're talking about. There you go. There you go. I like that standardization. Well, um, we are uh, doing our second podcast today. Um, we're in a bit of a different location. Hopefully the echo is not so bad. Yeah. We had a couple of comments on that. And we we kind of noticed that before, but we're going to um, try to continually improve things for the podcast. So be sure to let us know. Send us a tweet. Uh, it's at Einstein Monkey and for, for Twitter or leave a comment on the blog or whatever and let us know how things are or things that you think we could add. So... Um, well, let's go ahead and go on to the news. Okay, our first news item today is um, very recently Facebook joined the geolocation social media platform race, if you will, by launching Facebook Places. So this is uh, appears to be a direct competitor to Foursquare, Foursquare and Gowalla. And uh, personally, I've been a Foursquare user. I find it pretty fun to use. Um, the little game, kind of the gameplay interface or uh, action on it of getting points for checking in and more points when you check in at a place for the first time. For some reason, there's like some satisfying <laughs> result there, even though there's absolutely the points don't do anything. In fact, you can't even see what your point totals are. So, really? <laughs> nope. But uh, at least not that I've ever seen. But it's still kind of fun for some crazy reason. But uh, so Facebook has launched a competitor for that, Facebook Places, and uh, we'll see what that does. The amazing thing is that they have an incredible number of places already in there. Um, like Foursquare, they kind of had to build up over time, but there's yeah. like over a million places already in there. And when I've used it, most of the places right near me are already in the database. So it's kind of astounding. Any idea where they get that? I don't know where huh. that comes from. But if anybody knows, post a comment to our blog because I'd be really curious to know where that comes from. So there are some differences. Um, <laughs> there are some differences uh, on Facebook places compared to Foursquare. Um, you can check in either using the uh, the Facebook app for iPhone, and I believe that right now the iPhone is the only Facebook app that has places built in, but you can go on any mobile device to the website, just facebook.com, and you can access places from there. They actually have a very nice HTML5 version of Facebook for, hmm. for mobile devices. So you don't have to have an iPhone only. You can use that. Uh, so it does let you check in. Some differences, it does let you see... Anybody else that's checked into that location, uh, whether or not you're their friend. So, oh, really? So that's a little interesting. 
And the one super creepy feature is that <laughs> you can check in. I was going to replace <laughs> interesting with creepy. Yeah. <laughs> super creepy is you can check in your friends that are with you at really? a location. So this is like that's high, not so this cool. is highly controversial and no, that's not cool. Well, in that case, you better make sure that your friends on Facebook are real friends because you can come up with some really, really scary stuff. And one of the people I follow on Twitter, I don't want to name his name, but you know, he's he's so not safe for work, but he's so entertaining. <laughs> so if I have like a down during a day, I'll just check out his tweets and it always kicks me back into gear. Um, the ideas that he came up with for creating places. And checking other people into those places. If you've seen what he's up to, just you know, it's. A, I think it's a good idea to actually disable that feature in your account real soon. I can imagine something. Is, is it possible to disable? I have not investigated the privacy settings, but okay. I know there are controls as to who's either allowed to see where you've checked in, or even maybe whether other people can check you in. I would yeah. hope there's a setting for that. Um, but well, anyway. Facebook settings are. Like a quagmire unto themselves, but they are. So, anyway, interesting news stuff, and uh, over to you for number two. Well, have, have, before we move yeah. on, have you, have you used it? Yeah, I used you it. Have. Yeah, I just checked in actually here for the podcast. At, oh, okay. Uh, we're recording today at Everyday Joe's, and uh, yeah, checking huh. that out. Okay. Yeah, I never really got into the whole location. I mean, I, I signed up, and somebody uh, referred to like Foursquare as the ultimate rob me application <laughs> right like, well they're definitely not at home so. <laughs> right anyway doesn't mean there are other people at home though <clears throat> right well i've actually seen a, a website that analyzes tweets with geo information oh yeah i think it's I'm, i don't remember the exact name and we can add that to the episode notes for the website it's something like burgle me or something to that effect <laughs> and it does show a number of random tweets taken from the twitter stream and and adds the geo information where people are and gives the so the the a place close by and um, I think if you see that stream on that website once, it does get you thinking about what you want to publish on your Twitter stream because yeah. literally everyone can see it. And right. It doesn't feel that way when you type something into Twitter, but scary stuff. Yeah, yeah it is. Well, I think one of the <clears throat> news items I had today is um, one of my favorite websites slash wireframing tools is gomockingbird.com. And Mockingbird is a... It's a great web app for um, developing wireframes and even interactive wireframes for websites or software or whatever you're doing. And uh, it has been in public beta for quite a while. And you can have um, unlimited pages and um, I think one project for the beta. And they're getting out of beta as of September 1st. And they're going to start charging, which I, I actually kind of like it when uh, websites actually charge for stuff. Mm-hmm. Because they tend to actually start caring <laughs> a little bit, but um, it's it's really uh, not much money at all. Nine bucks a month for the personal um, thing gives you two projects, all the way up to unlimited projects for eighty five dollars a month. But it's a great wireframing tool. I tend to use Balsamic myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it makes a lower fidelity wireframe. People tend to not confuse it with a real website. Right, exactly. Uh, Mockingbird is a little bit higher fidelity wireframe, but it's still very obviously not a wireframe. Not final design. Right, okay. right. And one of my favorite features of it is it does not work on Internet Explorer. <laughs> 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 Safari, Firefox, or Chrome is what all, all that it works on. And it's not. there's no Flash. It's powered by Cappuccino, a really great app framework. Oh, so 
I would definitely give it a try. Um, That's neat. Especially... I've looked in the cappuccino a couple of years ago, or maybe a little over, yeah. Yeah. And when it was first emerging, and have not been following it closely, but it seemed like a very exciting, you know, kind of a desktop app kind of framework. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of first learned about it. I saw a uh, video presentation. I think if you go to Vimeo, you can search for it. It's from, it was the future of web apps over in England. Um, the guy who wrote Cappuccino was presenting, and in a weird, kind of a, a really weird kind of meta way, he showed how they wrote Cappuccino using Cappuccino. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was bizarre. But, uh, no wormholes open no, up or anything. Okay. <laughs> no, no space, space time continuum is fine. Um, but anyway, so it's a, it's a great... Uh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So I'd love to see a, a, you know evolved cappuccino app in action. Yeah. Nice job. See, the next item I have is um, Jing, J-I-N-G, is um, just launched a few new features. So if you don't know what Jing is, it's a, a free app that works on uh, Mac or PC that lets you take a screenshot or a screencast of your screen. Uh, and I like it because it's very easy to upload the videos that you record and share them with other people. So we use this for clients uh, frequently where we're trying to do some kind of a training scenario and we just want to move around the screen and talk. Yeah. And uh, you can create them very simply. And it integrates with your SlideShare account so that once you're done recording, you just click one button and it uploads to SlideShare. Really? Yeah. It's very slick. Like a video? Yeah. I didn't know SlideShare did videos. Uh-huh. It does now. They, they just added that feature, I want to say, a month or two ago. Cool. Yep. Um, so that is really neat. And again, you can do screencasts or you can do just a screenshot as well. Mm -hmm. So some of the... Okay, do you have a comment there? Yeah. If, if you use that for showing work to your clients, does it have some kind of access control so you can make sure that not the world, quote unquote, can see what you're sharing? You know, I, have, I haven't looked into that uh, carefully. Um, uh -huh. So far, we've just, you know, posted the URL, just sent it by email to our clients so they can see it. Um, they probably can see other things in there. I'm not sure. Okay. So that's a good question. They do have a free and pro versions. And so, and pro is very inexpensive. I believe it's only, yeah, $15 a year. So there are some enhanced features um, that will work that way. Mm -hmm. So perhaps they have those access controls. Um, but they now have the, the new features they just launched this week is they have the ability to um, select different recording uh, microphones. So if you have multiple microphones, you can select which one to use for that screencast. And just like it used to be able to, or still does, upload to SlideShare automatically, now you can connect it to a, an SFTP site, and on one click, it'll just upload your your presentation to uh, any SFTP site of your choosing. So that would let you upload it to your own website, for example, or uh, potentially Amazon S3 or something like that with just one click. So anyway, if you haven't checked out Jing before and you've been looking for some screen recording software for screencasts, or even just screenshots to be able to send to uh, to clients to review things. Uh, check it out, and it's the URL we'll put in the show notes. But it's uh, by TechSmith, so it's TechSmith.com forward slash Jing. Oh yeah, they make Camtasia mm -hmm. and Moray. Okay, yeah, good stuff. Cool. And the one of the my, my last thing for today is I just recently read that. Uh, iTunes U has reached 300 million downloads. Nice. Just for the iTunes U stuff. And if you're not familiar with iTunes U, it's basically a bunch of universities from around the world 
have videotaped their or audio of their actual university courses and put them up on uh, iTunes. And it's for the most, I think it's all free. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the features of it. Yeah. Features of it, yeah. And that means Stanford, Harvard, all the, the biggies. Yeah. And uh, so if you want to learn anything, just about anything, I just kind of want to make everybody aware of that again. And specifically, since John is here, he pointed me toward an awesome resource for if you want to learn about human-computer interaction, um, uh, designing interactive stuff at all, there's a great uh, set of stuff from the university in Aachen, Germany. And what's? Uh, can you tell me about? Can you tell a little bit about the uh, the programs they have on there? Um, I think the the two most interesting courses are designing interactive systems one and two. So it's a two semester course. And it's being organized by the Media Computing Group of that university, which happens to be my alma mater, by the way. <laughs> um, and they have a very young professor by the name of Jan Borschers. And uh, I think he kind of tries to create the sort of a, a sister organization to the MIT Media Lab, sort of, mm-hmm. because they do some really fancy stuff there. Um, I think it would be a good idea to add the, the link to that um, university institute to the Oh, definitely the show, notes. In the show notes, yeah. And you should check out some of their stuff on uh, video navigation. So instead of uh, moving a thumb on the timeline, you can grab something that's in the video, like a car door that is, is opening, for example, and you, you literally pull on the car door with the mouse pointer really? to move the video back and forth. And it is so amazing. It's, wow. Uh, and it's, it's really sensitive technology. They showed uh, an example with, with a little uh, pigeon walking along the sidewalk, and they could even touch that pigeon and move the video back and forth in that example. Um, wow. And one of the, uh, the things that they do is they have a number of courses that are part of the computer science curriculum, mm-hmm. including, uh, I think, a beginner course on Java, uh, on uh, best practices of programming, uh, and again, Designing Interactive Systems 1 and 2 is a really in-depth, uh, very high-quality, uh, let's say very high-value, if you're into that kind mm-hmm. of topic, course on basically anything that has to do with human-computer interaction. They cover the history of user interfaces, basics like, you know, buzzwords like Fitz Law, for example, um, and up to high-end media implementation. So that's that's something to, to check out. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff, and, and I think... The, the first semester has two and a half hour long episodes, so it's quite a bit to chew on, but it's definitely worth it because it's very well structured. So it's good oh, stuff. All that sounds yeah, awesome. If you go to iTunes and search for, I just just search for R W T H Aachen. Um, Aachen is A A C H E N. You'll find it. It's under the computer science um, curriculum, <clears throat> and they they do have stuff like they discuss discuss the Gestalt laws. Um, mappings, constraints, prototyping, all that kind of stuff. It's really neat. It's a lot of disk space. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a terabyte it's, external drive. Yeah, pretty much. It gets, it's close to about a gig per lesson because mm-hmm. they are two-and-a-half-hour, two-hour lessons, but it's worth it. So. Very cool. It's incredible how much is out there for free. Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't even know to, need to go to college anymore. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Goodwill Hunting 2.0. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. How about them, Apple? So, our feature for today, in Wired Magazine, the issue that just came out, there is a cover article which is titled, The Web is Dead. And um, I was very interested to read the article because basically 
it's talking about apps on mobile phones versus the browser on mobile phones. And this seems to be a pretty hot topic right now um, as to, you know, are, is everything moving toward apps? Um, are things moving away from the browser? Uh, you know, kind of what is the state of things? So having read it, I thought there were some interesting points, and I thought they also missed a lot of really key things and kind of missed the boat in some pretty serious areas. Yeah. Um, and for us as web designers and developers, this is a really relevant topic because, you know, should we be focusing on browser stuff or should we be focusing on apps for iPhone, Android, and different platforms? Or, you know, where should we be looking down the road? So anyway, this the idea here is to have a discussion among the, the three of us about this. And uh, I'll just open it up to start with any initial, you know, comments that uh, either John or Steve have here to get us started. You know, whenever I see an article headline that states that something is dead, you know, <laughs> I first take a really deep breath because you can just smell that that is trolling for page views. Yeah, I mean, it's link bait. <laughs> link bait, totally. Exactly. Um, and then after you have taken that deep breath and you read that and, and try to make sense of it, some of the articles are way out of line and, and some are just, you know, uh, meaningless in a way. Um, I have to say that a lot of the stuff that I've read in that article, I think is spot on and is, it makes for an interesting read. But um, the one thing that I don't see in, the, in, I mean, this is a set of two articles, you know, and it says who's to blame. And Well, you, you should go out and read it and, and, and see what you think of it. But, you know, whenever I see buzzwords like open or uh, technical platforms, I don't think that the customer cares for a technical platform at all. I mean, it's, it's a current buzzword that is, is being spread around the internet. Uh, and mind you, I say internet, not the web, for a good reason here. Mm -hmm. uh, a buzzword is user experience. And I think it's a bit overused, but the thing is, if somebody uses an iPhone, I don't think they really care about whether this is a website that they're viewing or right. if it's an application. What they care about is, is what they're using at any given moment. Is that useful to them? Is it easy to use? Is it a pleasure to use? Or is it a, a badly designed piece of software? And I think it's even more, I mean, I think the average person's not thinking, is this a well-designed or poorly designed piece of software? It's mm -hmm. probably, is this easy to use? Exactly. And can I get done what I want to get exactly. done? Does it work for me? That's the key yeah, sentence, I think. Does it That's work it. for me? It can I use me? it? Right. Um, and in that sense, when, when you see that the, the web is dead, um, the, the only reason I see that people might maybe hope that the web is dead, is that the, <laughs> that a web browser always adds a bit of uh, user interface overhead. It's like an extra abstraction layer. And I find it much easier and more convenient to launch an application on the iPhone than go into the Safari browser and go to a web page. Um, but apart from that, it really comes down to, is it usable for the user? It doesn't. And, and do it they it, care it, about the technical platform? Yeah, is it useful? Yeah, usable and useful. Yeah, and also uh, one one of my pet peeves. I, I just have to mention this here is when everybody's when when, it, when whenever somebody says, "Oh, but don't you don't they consider that this is open?" You know, I'm very very convinced that if you ask an average user, not a techie like us or techies like us that spend hours every day in front of the computer and online. I mean, for us. Internet is ubiquitous. It has right. become ubiquitous. Yeah, sure. But if you look at someone who might spend an hour on a computer a day, in Facebook, for example, 
Does the word open have any meaning to them? Does it, and even if it does, does it make a difference in their purchasing decision? You know, I, mm -hmm. I can't imagine someone going to a, to a phone store and picking a device and going, well, I like this, this works really well, and I would love to purchase this, but this is proprietary technology. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, this, not this not, is what yeah. geeks do. This is not <laughs> what the average population does. the average does. person does. Yeah. I would agree. In fact, I would, I would guess that most people associate open with free, and it doesn't, exactly. and it doesn't go beyond yeah. that, right? I think it comes down to what you said. Does it work for me, uh -huh. for most people? Yeah. What I thought when I read the article is, it's, I kind of thought it was a non-issue. <laughs> yes. The way that, that's, I mean, that's the way to put it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, is the web, they said, the title is The Web is Dead, Long Live the Internet. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's like potato, potato, you know, which it doesn't really matter because all this is just evolving. And most people, mm -hmm. the web is the internet, they don't care. Right. And they got, I mean, they get into discussion about, you know, which protocols are used and which ports are used. And this is the most of the traffic coming from port 80 and that kind of thing. And I think, it's it, to me. It's just an evolving thing, whatever we call it. This <laughs> this cloud thingy out there. Um, it started a long time ago, just with text back and forth, and it's evolved to um, the little graph they have, uh, at least on the website. I know Ron has the actual paper version <laughs> in front of him. Speaking of things that are dead. Magazines are not dead. I'm reading my magazine right here. So you've got the dead, which I can use the dead tree version. Yeah. Analog pen to actually make notes and things. That's true. Know? Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, if you uh, uh, if you look at this graph they have above it, it's like video spikes way high, and you know it. Things are moving maybe away from a browser so much that's fine. It's just how it, things change. I think mm -hmm. it's kind of like John said. It's it's kind of link bait a little bit. Um, they've the gotten a lot of buzz from this article for sure, and I think that yes, things are moving more to the the apps side of things. Yeah, so I think that's that's I think part of the fundamental question that they're trying to ask, right, right. or address is. You know, are things moving more toward apps? It would appear to be. That's, yeah. Yeah. And is, and is that a trend? And it seemed to me that one of the points they were trying to make was that um, the monetization of things is much easier through apps. Um, mm. And therefore, maybe larger entities are more likely to try to control that to take a larger share of revenue. I mean, in a way, I mean, it seems, I don't know if Apple actually invented, you know, apps for mobile devices, but they certainly to their iTunes store and their iPhone platform were the first to be able to popularize it. it. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I think what makes, you know, the app stuff successful right now, I think there's a number of things, but I mean, one is with Apple specifically, you know, they're able to control the whole thing as we know, right? The software and the delivery system, iTunes and the hardware. So even in independent developers creating on the platform create user experiences that are pretty reasonable, right? Right, right. out of the box because the whole thing is a controlled environment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an advantage because when you come down to the question of does it work for me, the first part of that is even more important. Does it work? Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think with an app, uh, given that kind of a framework, you have a pretty higher probability than just a random website, um, you know, of it working just right off the bat. What you just said about controlling what's on the iPhone, you read a lot of commentary that is that is very valid that Apple does control which applications will be available in the App Store. Yeah, that's so they have deal. a very tight grip on that. Um, and I can see how someone who who is into let's say the the political side of the internet per se 
worries about these issues. But again, um, when they say you cannot run all the software that you want on your iPhone, again, I think that for, for the average customer or the user of an iPhone, that's a non-issue because they will eventually find what they're looking for on the uh, iPhone App Store. Right. Um, and if which, not, you can always go to Safari or the Google app and do a search absolutely. for absolutely. the thing you need. That so you I guess if, if, if you would talk to someone on the street and say, well, uh, I see you have an iPhone. Can you run the software you want? And they will probably show you what they have on their iPhone and be a happy camper about it. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, the one thing is, what do I get in return for my money as a, as a customer? Mm-hmm. And the other is, what am I worried about as a, let's say, a political person? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's not that much overlap. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't say anything about whether that's good or not, that there's no overlap, but it's a different kind of thinking that is involved here. It is. And I think, I think one of the other things that apps have going for it so far is that the ability to add them and purchase them is so easy. Absolutely. That's a crucial piece of uh-huh. the technology. If it was harder to add an app or purchase an app, it wouldn't be as successful as it is right now. So, you know, on the web app side, so through a browser, you know, I think that we have something to learn from that. You know, is it possible to move web apps toward, you know, there are web apps that cost money, maybe a freemium model where certain services are free and then you pay mm-hmm. for a higher level. You know, could we get to a point where web apps were just as easy to pay for as a regular app. And I don't know the answer to that, mm-hmm. but that to me that would start getting more parity, you know, that would help with the parity between web apps through a browser versus installed apps on the phone. But for, I think from from a convenience standpoint that's a very important point because if you look at all these micropayment models where you have to either provide even your credit card for just paying a buck or so, yeah, it's a or pain. you have to log in and you have to sign up because you want to purchase a, I don't know, an archive copy of, a, of an article that was published two years ago. And um, it's so much hassle to actually access that kind of yeah, information. Right. You know, in a way, I think this is what Amazon was trying to do with their one-click purchase system, which they uh-huh. right, patented years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what they were trying to do. But... You know, I think the, the the direction is almost already out there. You know, as far as like logins to various web apps that you have to log into, you know, there are now multiple systems where you can just use a common login, right? Like you can use your Facebook login. For goodness sake, yeah, that's <laughs> probably the word. That's what came to my mind too. Is like, oh, what's another one? I don't want to say that. Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> I use Harvest for a lot of my billing, uh-huh. and you can log in with uh, my Google Apps account. Right. Perfect. So that, yeah, they can do that. Right. And isn't there? Open auth or OAuth or yeah OAuth yeah, yeah right yeah. OAuth so there are there are other systems out there so if they can do it for logins you know maybe there's a way and of course now the downside is someone's going to be controlling the financial transactions through that mm-hmm. one portal right so they're probably going to take some piece of the pie which is a massive uh, difficult difficulty and that's the that's the reason I think that Apple is um, able to monetize it so well as they do have that control like you mentioned exactly. earlier. But imagine that you could pay for any web app by using your Apple ID and yeah. Apple handle the payment system, which mm-hmm. they already have your credit card on file, or in the Android store, however it works for the Android apps. Right. I'm not as familiar with that. Well, there was for a while there, there was kind of some rumors about Apple not only having the iTunes app store, but also like a Mac app store of some sort. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. Where, and that, that would be more software, but I could see that moving into 
payments for web apps. You know, right. you could sign up and get the API or whatever. Exactly. So I think that's one of the key things that is making apps so successful is the systems of how easy it is to purchase an app. Yeah. It's not the app itself. It's really the convenience, right? Mm -hmm. You look at human nature, we're totally wired to do whatever is the most convenient thing to do. Yeah, and I, I, just, I just read a book recently, um, How We Decide. Mm. Great book, by the way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and he mentioned, I think, I think it's that book. I've read a lot of books lately. Anyway, the, he talks about research that has been done as far as human behavior goes mm -hmm. between cash versus a card when you're buying something. And if you use cash, you spend like 50% less mm -hmm. on average than if you use a card because it's one level removed. If you've Makes got this sense. green stuff in your hands, if there's pain involved, right? But and <laughs> oh, yeah. a card, it's it's like I'm I'm not seeing this. Mm -hmm. But then if you get to something like the app store, you know, you click it, and you can even set up to not even ask for your password. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You click it, and it's done. Right. And I've paid for it, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's just it's really they've really figured out how to make impulse purchasing mm -hmm. good. I I kind of have a question though, what how how where do you guys see this going as far as the apps versus the website? Do you see people like I know that a lot of folks have apps on the app store like Facebook has an app, etc. Mm -hmm. Do you see it becoming a necessary piece like for your web design clients, mm -hmm. Ron? Right. Do you see it like okay, I've got my e-commerce site, but now your next step is to make an iPhone app for it? Right. So here that's a, I'm glad you asked that question because I think the biggest point they missed in the article is they, they're making it sound like apps are the next thing, mm -hmm. like are the evolution mm -hmm. of the web and that the browser is dead, right? That somewhere in here I think it says something about, you know, why did we ever think the browser was the pinnacle of the Internet? Yeah, yeah. Right? But I, I think it misses the boat entirely because if they talk about web apps as you know, software as a service in the cloud stuff kind of up and coming. But the reason that was successful is that it has to do with bandwidth speeds, and they missed this yes. entire topic. I so, thought that same thing. Cool. So, you know, the reason that Google Apps and Gmail works, and I'm using it like an app on my on my laptop, yeah. is that my internet connection speed is so fast that the delay in taking an action is so minimal, it no longer bothers me to wait that half a second or sometimes a second or two for an action to complete. Right. That's why. And on handheld phones... You know, well, let's look at the history, right? Prior to web apps, we had installed software, right? Applications, which of course we still use, sure. uh, installed on the hard drive. Why? Because it just runs faster off of the local machine than over slow connection. And I think this is really, it's a back and forth continuum, a pendulum that will just continue to go. So with mobile devices, internet speeds are far slower than you get on a laptop, right? Even the 4G stuff is not that good. Yeah. It's not really good mm -hmm. enough to do web apps in a really slick, smooth way. So what's the answer? Installed software, mm -hmm. right? You have the software yeah, residing on point. the platform. It runs way faster. And yeah, you can design the interface so it does just the things you need, which is tailoring it to the device, which is wise. Um, but I really think it's the internet connection speed that's the deal. And of course, the connection per se. I mean, uh, if, if you work in an office environment and you have an always-on connection with usually a pretty decent speed, uh, the issue of latency with working in a web app is a no-brainer. It, it's just, it doesn't so affect you at all. Right, it doesn't affect you. But if you use a phone or, or any portable device, an iPad or something, and, and you're on a plane, you're not connected at all. You can't do anything. Um, exactly. And uh, I've always been a fan of having native applications, again, for what could be described as the sort of the, 
the overall user experience because I just love the feel of my of, of that computer I use, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the look and feel of it. Um, and a native application provides that. So what I prefer is have a native application on the device that synchronizes data with what is become known as the cloud, mm-hmm. this big thing. Uh, but again, the, the platform per se is sort of like like a tool that you use to implement the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like you said, Ron, on the iPhone, because of its limitations, like the reduced bandwidth, it makes a lot of sense to have an, uh, an, an application mm-hmm. that runs native mm-hmm. and just synchronizes a bit of data back and forth so that it makes best use of what is available technically. Exactly. And in another environment with um, with other conditions, a web app might be just the thing. Sure. Might make a lot more sense. And a perfect example for me on the iPhone is I use Gmail for my interface both on my laptop and on the iPhone, and I, I use the actual the browser version of Gmail on the iPhone. You know, mm-hmm. I'm using Safari. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've tailored that app to... Um, the web app through the browser to work very well, and it's it's specific to you know this size of platform, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's really like if I have a Wi-Fi connection, it mm-hmm. is really fast and it's very effective. I mostly check, I mean, I don't send. It's hard to write you know emails, <laughs> but you know, something short. But mm-hmm. certainly for checking email, it's mm-hmm. incredibly effective. And then even on the three G connection, it's tolerable. It's not ideal, but it's tolerable. Yeah. So, and there's an example of an app that I use all the time that is an app and it works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think I think the this attempt to break things down into, oh, apps are now it and the web is dead is not true. Mm-hmm. I think what we'll see is as mobile connection speeds come up to par, um, I think you're going to see that more and more web apps are going to be just as successful as regular applications. Mm-hmm. Now, monetizing, it's another story. We talked yeah. about that a little bit. Um, but I, I think that's where it's going. I'd be really curious to see in Japan and other countries that have much higher mobile connection speeds mm-hmm. now, like what's the pattern over there? Because that might be more of a forecaster for for what's going on, you know, here in the U.S. So back to your question, Steve, about as a web designer, web developer, you know, what do we pay attention to? Is it apps? Is it? I think it's both. I think, and I think right now the world is beautiful on both sides, right? I mean, right now apps are huge. They're popular. It's growing. People are willing to pay one, two, three bucks for an app, and you could potentially sell a million of them. Yeah. You know, if you have an idea for a really good app that solves a problem, I think now is the sweet spot to go for it while you can. Because I think it's a, you know, it's not going to be this sunny forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and at the same time, I think HTML5 and CSS3, and uh, we're going to have a, a feature in the future on responsive web design. I think that is the future of the web. And uh, I think that's crucial to pay attention to and really focus on because um, it won't be long. As soon as we have better connection speeds, you can write... Even now, you know, you can write apps that are browser-based that work great on the phone if you have a decent mm-hmm. connection speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, these tools now, with especially this responsive web design with uh, the media queries capability in CSS3, um, just make the apps, you know, fantastic in a small small device. Yeah, and there's a to go along with that. I came across a, a, there's the, the most recent article from a list apart mm-hmm. uh, is apps versus the web. Oh, um, how about that? By Craig Hockenberry, and he he goes through kind of a little bit of this discussion as far as which is better for which uh, application or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, talks a lot about the iPhone and how, and it, it's basically kind of walks people through which if if I'm going to build with something, if I've got an idea. Do I do a web app? Do I do a mobile app or a, a mobile app or a, a website? Right. Um, right. 
And so I, I would recommend everybody goes to that, and we'll put that in the show notes. It's at alistapart.com. Cool. And, um, I look forward to reading that one. And he has some really neat examples of HTML5, CSS3 mm-hmm. web apps that function basically like an installed application on your iPhone. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's key. You brought that up, um, John, about um, what I call occasionally connected computing, right. where you want the ability uh-huh. when you don't have an internet connection to do things, but then it syncs with some larger cloud or database mm-hmm. once you're connected. And HTML5 has that capability to do occasionally connected apps. There is local data storage um, mm-hmm. built into HTML5 capability. And Safari implements it quite well already, and Chrome isn't too bad. So mm-hmm. you, know, you can play with it already. And in fact, uh, very recently this week when I logged into <coughs> Gmail uh, through Safari, it asked for five megabytes of storage on my local device. Did it? Okay. Yes. And so I think they have just recently upgraded the huh. Gmail app on Safari mm-hmm. on the mobile devices to actually do local storage. So I'll have to turn off the internet and see what I can do with it. But I, you know, I suspect that they're they're actually caching a fair bit of data now. Five megabytes. That's a lot of text. I think you just used a very scary phrase. You have to turn off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Scare me. <laughs> So I think the future is very exciting. I think I think it's good to pay attention to to both things. And you said something just a moment ago, Steve. You know, should you build an an app or a web app? You know, what direction? I I think the right way to do that is to look at you know how do your users use your information? Are they using mobile devices? Are they using desktop OS devices? What's their primary way to access your data? And then if you're building a mobile app, you know, context is key. You know, so what do people want to be able to access if they're using your site from a phone? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite examples of that is a, a Google Maps application. You know, if I'm my my laptop and accessing Google Maps and trying to get directions, you know, I need to put in a starting point and an ending point, and that's how you expect it to work. But on a mobile device, if I'm using Maps, I'm probably trying to get from where I am to right. somewhere. Right, so the needs are different. Okay, so I'm going to default start from current position. I'm not going to require an entry for where I'm starting from. Also, traffic probably matters a lot more to me if I'm on my mobile device than on my laptop. Mm -hmm. So if you come at the design angle from looking at, you know, in the context of the mobile world, what does my user want to do for, you know, with this information? If you design from that standpoint first, I think it would be more clear if an app is the right way. Right. Or a web app through the browser is the right way for the mobile device. Yeah. You know, I think there's another point that we haven't even touched on yet. Basically, what we've been talking about so far is um, native apps versus web apps. Mm-hmm. And if you read that article, uh, it sort of feels like that is sort of at the core of the discussion and how to, what technique in terms of what platform you choose to use to monetize on, on the services and information you offer. Um, something that is totally missing in that article is the web as a publishing platform and not mm-hmm. as a professional publishing platform, mm-hmm. but as a platform, for example, for a, um, a podcast like ours, for um, just a simple web page, blogs. I don't think that's going, that, that is going away. I, I think that's definitely going to stay and because that's where open comes in in a really good way there there's basically no limitation on who can publish what yeah. at least not in the what we call the the more democratic part of the world <laughs> and i think that's a very important key because that is something where open has a meaning for everyone literally absolutely. everyone absolutely and um in that case 
for, for this purpose, the technology of the web, I think, is one of a kind. And you don't have to have a web app or a flashy website. In that case, really, the quality of the content, right. what you have to say, not how you say it, yeah. is the key to finding customers, quote-unquote, for what you have to offer. And I totally agree with that. I mean, even in the website design and development world, you know, as far as the factors involved, content is the most important thing, Absolutely. I think. I think it's more important than the design mm-hmm. and more important than the functionality. If you can do all of them together, mm-hmm. that's what sets you apart from your competitors. Absolutely. But if you can only do one thing... The content is the key. Mm-hmm. Even good... if you have a crappy website. <laughs> That's right. I know where that comes wise. from. <laughs> I know where Let's that all comes put up with a crappy website. We can help you with that. We'll oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so there's one more point I wanted to make about um, apps, which is there is a downside to the app approach, which is they're platform-specific. So yes. you have to create, you know, so maintainability. If you look at this from a programming standpoint, right, we're always looking to reuse code and have a common code base. And if you're trying to design apps for the iPad and the iPhone and Android and other platforms, mm-hmm. that's a lot of different code to maintain. And as you roll yeah. out features, that's expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, you can also monetize that and make a lot of money. So it's working right now, but that's a really, I think, important downside to the app direction. Whereas with web apps, right, all you need is a browser and, mm-hmm. and you can design it so that it works on any platform. And I know that some app developers have essentially made their app is nothing but a wrapper for some HTML, CSS. Right. And so it's kind of like the iAds thing that's coming out. It's rolling out right now. Any iAd from Apple is actually an HTML, 5 CSS3 page that's interactive. And so that would work on any device. You just have to make sure that the wrapper works on Android or whatever it is. Right. And... And luckily for now, we'll basically have Android and iPhone. We have the main two apps right now. So that's one way to go at it. Um, But you're right. It it could be a nightmare Mm -hmm. to to support all that stuff. So so there's a cost structure involved there, I think, with the apps and maintaining that, that you can get around on on the web app version. Mm -hmm. A perfect case in point is this Facebook Places. Right now, as I understand it, I believe the iPhone is the only one whose app's been updated with the new feature. Yet their web app has it. So, you know, there they just updated on the web app once, and now whether you're using BlackBerry or Android or iPhone, you can use Places if you use mm-hmm. the browser to access your Facebook account. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're using the app only, you're limited in features because of their rollout schedule. Right. So, anyway, it's a fun discussion. But you see, the, the, the fun thing is we've basically touched on three topic areas here. The view from the customer, the view from the implementer, the developer, what kind of technology to use, and the business person, how much cost is involved, mm-hmm. what is my risk. profits involved. <laughs> exactly, and there's such a complex structure of, of uh, decision-making involved that mm-hmm. just by checking the proportion of, of web traffic to deduct <laughs> that the web is dead, you know. Uh, yeah, well, maybe to, hardly relevant. To paraphrase... Um, Frank Zappa, the web isn't dead yet. It just smells funny. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well said. So our next section is our book club. So a reminder of how this will work is uh, occasionally, roughly once a month or so, we're going to feature a specific book for discussion. And the book we've selected for our first one is HTML5 for Designers by Jeremy Keith. And we'll be discussing that on our September 28th uh, podcast. And the idea is uh, we're hoping that 
uh, some listeners will go ahead and, and purchase that book and um, make some comments on our blog about questions they have or comments they have about the book as they're reading through it. And then uh, we'll discuss that book in the studio on the 28th. And based on the comments and questions posted about the book on the blog um, on our website, then we will uh, actually invite one uh, listener to participate with us via Skype during the live recording. And when possible, we're going to try to have authors on as well. So That's going to be cool. Yeah. So we're going to tr- give that a shot. We'll see if we can get Jeremy Keith. Uh, we have no idea if he's even uh, would even do it, but we're going to ask, and we'll see how that goes. So if you're looking for uh, HTML5 for designers, um, I read it. It's a great book. You can find it from uh, uh, – it's, it's an, uh, produced by the uh, A List Apart franchise, if you will, and it's available at books.alistapart.com. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. It's also, if you go to EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com, there's a, a page that says Book Club, and we'll have, that's where you need to leave your comments about the book. Um, you know, you don't have to have read it all, just say, I want to be on the show, or whatever, but preferably somebody who has something smart to say would be nice. <laughs> but it's there with a link to the, to the place where you can buy it as well. Um, also, just a reminder that we, uh, to send any kind of questions, we're going to start having a listener question section for each podcast, and send questions to ask at EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com, and a simple email is fine, or if you want to go the extra mile, as we said last time, and have an audio com- comment, that'd be even better, we can play you your question on, and that can be anything from, um, I dare I say, physics, <laughs> to uh, just about anything, but let, let's actually let's keep it on the website. Um, uh, you know, Ron runs a web design company, um, has been a programmer and so forth, and I've been done design and development and and a user experience designer now. So we kind of run the gamut. So any kind of questions you have, whether it's from you know running your web your web studio as a business, how to handle that kind of stuff, or if it's a technical question. I think we can uh, come up with some good answers for you. So our next section is the Social Media Minute. And I'd like to introduce uh, Nick Armstrong, who produces or uh, creates the content for this segment for us. And Nick is a Gen Y social media guy here in Fort Collins. (laughs) And I am impressed with how much stuff he can pack into one minute. So here you go, our Social Media Minute from Nick Armstrong. Thanks, guys. My name is Nick Armstrong, and this is the Social Media Minute. Today, we're going to be discussing Discuss, found at Discuss.com. Discuss is a dusty line of pure awesome on the mirror that is your website. It's a comment management tool that's 100% free, and it has integration with almost any site, whether it's WordPress, Blogger, TypePad, or Tumblr, and even if you swing with the Drupalistas, you're covered. It features email notifications for new comments and allows for multiple admins and multiple sites straight through one user account. That's right. You don't have to log in 20 different times to manage your 20 different sites. Users of your website can log in with Twitter, Facebook, Yahoo, OpenID, or almost any other platform that you can think of. When they post a comment, it brings their avatar in from their other social media accounts, and you can also link to their Discuss profile if they have one, which is also free. The Discuss profile for your users has the links to their website and other social media profiles, so it can be a really handy way to find out more about your visitors. Users can even post their witty rantings to Twitter or Facebook if they want to. Thank God YouTube hasn't installed it. Anyway, I'm Nick Armstrong, and this has been your Social Media Minute. If you want to check out an example of Discuss in Action, you can check out the Einstein and Sock Monkey website or IamNickArmstrong.com. 
And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled hair explosion with Einstein and Sock Monkey. So uh, next section is the blog of the week, and Steve and I each have one this week. So I'll start. Um, so my, my one of my favorite blogs of all time that I don't read nearly as often as I, I would like to is uh, Swiss Miss. The uh, URL is swissmissnyc.com, and um, uh, Tina Eisenberg is a Swiss designer turned or gone New York City, as she says, and her blog is just fantastic. She posts all kinds of things, many posts per day, so it's very prolific, and a lot of it is uh, design-related, but not web design. It's just all over the place. So uh, some current topics include a reusable finger spoon. Uh, there is a web-related topic of the ability to call actual phones from Gmail for free through the end of the year or internationally for a low rate. Looks like Google is trying to compete directly with Skype here. Um, there's a bamboo umbrella. So that's a great example of a beautiful design physical object. And it just goes on and on. There's all kinds of um, really wonderful art and design items that she uh, highlights every day. So especially uh, as holidays come up, if you're looking for a gift for a, a geek or especially a designer, um, there's, there's just great, great ideas on this blog. And it's really pleasurable to read. It's just a ton of fun. So highly yeah. recommend uh, SwissMissNYC.com. And I came across an awesome blog this week that I have a feeling John will appreciate. <laughs> it's um, ThingsOrganizedNeatly.tumblr.com. And <laughs> Quite a title. <laughs> well, yeah. Things Organized Neatly is the basically it. And it's, it's nothing but... Um, Eye candy for OCD people. Essentially. <laughs> um, so just photos of, uh, well, dead birds. That's kind of sad. <laughs> but, <laughs> Good start. Shoes. Yeah. Are, are they neatly organized? They're dead very birds? neatly organized. Well, they're specimens. <laughs> oh, they should say. I see. They're, I see. Yes, okay. Scientific. Um, that you know, bags. Um, you know, shoes, pants, tools. It's just. It's just. Uh, Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It's all organized neat. It literally is things organized neatly. You're a strange person, Steve. I yes. <laughs> you know what? You know what's really scary, Steve. When I saw you link to that website on Twitter, yeah, and I checked it out, I realized that in my own aperture library, you'll find quite a few that look exactly. Like <laughs> so. Yeah, I like that site. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably. I, I wouldn't want to discuss it with a psychiatrist. Why I like it? <laughs> That's awesome. Do you do you have a blog you wanna mention? Oh, um, yeah. It's it looks scarily crappy in terms of design, but as we said earlier, content, content is where it's at. So content is king. If you're OCD about usability, and you're one of those people that as soon as you start using a technical device, you just cannot not analyze the merits of its user interface, then you can have a look at the UI Observatory that I started a couple months ago. So that is UIObservatory.com, and it has a couple of blog posts about everyday user experiences. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that, John. Cool. Yeah, I had a, <clears throat> I think one of those experiences today. I was in an elevator, and I, I just had to take a picture of the way the buttons were laid out because it was so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> the other people in the elevator were with me kind of... Uh, what are you yeah. doing? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at it like it's for work. <laughs> now that you mentioned that, you know, the, the, the thing is it, it, it usually is what you encounter in your everyday life that is, mm -hmm. is also yep. about usability, not just screen yeah. design. If you go to my web blog and read something on there, 
the one article you should read is the very first one because that is about 10 rules uh, of good usability mm -hmm. cool. that, uh, in read. fact, what, uh, is based on a talk that was given by the professor who was behind the iTunes U program oh. that we talked about earlier. Wow. And his concept is that, as he puts it, Uh, his efforts to convince designers to build better products have failed, <laughs> which is a pretty bold statement. But uh, if, if you use an average alarm clock from a, from a supermarket, you know that he's right. So he wants to educate average consumers to learn what makes good user interfaces. And I tried to sort of explain how these 10 rules could be applied to everyday purchasing decisions. Awesome. So it's, it's really interesting yeah, stuff. So next time you go out to buy a DVR or something like that, you still purchase these kinds of standalone devices at all that's awesome <laughs> that, that's actually really encouraging because i mean i think i think one of our jobs in a way in this field is education of you know and and it's exciting to see design and good design coming more to the forefront at least it seems to me you know with uh, ipods and apple's direction and wider adoption of some of these things my hope is that you know more app, you know more people just in general appreciate good design and see the value in good design Uh, the more we can educate everybody about the value of good design, then um, you know the easier it is for us to do our jobs, really, because we're not having to sell sell our services. People will want the services mm -hmm. of improving user experiences and interfaces. I think the big challenge is the uh, challenge is that when people do use a device, any device, they can tell you if they like using it, if it mm -hmm. works for them, mm -hmm. but they probably will not be able to tell you why the one device works well and the other one does not. Sure. And that's, that's, a, a, that's, that's the key okay, thing though. about education. Yeah. Yeah. So because if you go out and purchase something, you don't know beforehand if you will be able to use it right or if it will be pleasant to use or if it works for you or not. And do your rules help sort that out for the consumer? Uh, these are not my rules, so I don't <laughs> want to grab the, the credits from, from Professor Borchers here, but... Um, It's sort of a, a translation of his German talk that, you know, into English so that other people can read that and Fantastic. see what he's saying. It's just a paraphrasing of what he, what he said. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to reading that myself. Oh, and back to the iTunes U thing really quick. I should mention that all the stuff we mentioned is in English. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <very> cool. <laughs> there, is, there are a whole bunch of uh, talks on there in German as well, if you really want to go that way. Well, that's, that's all we have for the podcast today. Thanks for listening to number two. Um, please do not forget, it, forget to visit the website, EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com. And, and uh, where else can they find us? Yeah, so uh, Ron Zazadinsky. You can find me on Twitter at Ron underscore Z or on the web at CodeGeek.net. And uh, my website is CleverCubed.com and also Twitter is at CleverCubed. That's cubed with cubed a D. Cubed with a D at the end, yeah. yes. <laughs> and John? Again, uiobservatory.com, and you can find me on Twitter at J-O-C-H-E-N-W-O-L-T-E-R-S, John Walters. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that. I, I thought about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the, the Twitter handle for the podcast is at EinsteinMonkey, so... Be, be nice and, and follow us. <laughs> we'll love you. It's good for us, your digital karma. Exactly. Give us, give us feedback. Give us feedback. We want yeah, to know what you want to hear. So. All right. And so see you guys next time. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency. 
and clevercubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at blacklabworld.com. Stop.